a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, programs like this exist not to tell you what to think, but rather to encourage you to think clearly and independently. Why? Because that is our highest duty in times of crisis. I want to welcome Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. It's great to be here. And uh, once again, congratulations on your new acquisition that we were talking about a little off the air. Ah, uh, yes, the wrong Thinkmobile. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I needed I needed a company vehicle, and I think I may have found it. And and if I need it, yep. you know, because Mad Max uh, conditions prevail, well, it, it should be there to do the job. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you may need it if, because we may very well have reached that uh, very hard to divine inflection point uh, in the history of what's going on right now. That's always easy to see in the rearview mirror, but not too easy to anticipate. Um, or, or pin the tail on the donkey in the moment. And sure, I think... As, hmm? It sure has been interesting to see the about-face on the part of many of the, you know, the people who are pushing these COVID lockdowns and mandates and you know, masks and vaccine policies, and, and they're starting to step back. In fact, they're starting to, to spin around and say, okay, now it's probably good we go the other direction. And it makes you wonder, what exactly have they perceived that, <clears throat> that has them basically deserting the sinking ship? Well, this inflection point that I think we should talk about is that interview that Joe Rogan uh, conducted with, uh, with Dr. Malone uh, that I think really got a lot of people to thinking, uh, and particularly the reaction, about the reaction to it, the way Malone was uh, vilified, deplatformed, I think, uh, and the way Rogan has been attacked, of course, for having had the audacity to put that man uh, on his podcast. But I think most people who aren't out of their minds, and I think that's most people, despite the way it looks out there, think about it and look and look at it and say to themselves, you know, here's the guy who is one of the key people involved in the development of these mRNA vaccines. The man has absolute standing to, to offer up his views on mRNA vaccines. There are very few people in the world who have the credentials that this man has to talk about it. That's point one. Point two, the way he's so careful uh, and so judicious in what he says. The man is not a hysteric. He doesn't make wild assertions that he can't back up. He simply talks about the facts as he knows them, and he is an authoritative person. And it's so difficult to undermine that, to, to just dismiss that as so-called misinformation. I think it doesn't pass the smell test for a lot of people. And I think that when we do look in the rearview mirror years down the road at what's going on now, this may prove to be a moment that's very much similar to when Tom Paine put out his common sense pamphlet um, that made the case in a, in a really simple but very powerful way uh, for the colonists as far as their grievances against the English crown. We see what's going on now, I think, more and more people, and they've had enough of it. Oh, yeah. And, and it's so interesting. Remember when the big concern about Rogan was, well, he is disseminating disinformation and there are millions yeah. of lives at stake. And now it's just evolved into he's racist. He's racist. Right. Exactly. So it was never about, he, he's it was racist, never about the he's science. This, he's that. 
you know, and, and with regard to Rogan, I think the reason he's so popular is a measure of the, the, the desperate yearning that many people have, millions of people have, for somebody who isn't an arrogant, preaching, lecturing, woke, know-it-all, somebody who's just forthright, self-effacing, somebody who just wants to talk about whatever the issue is. He doesn't peddle a particular point of view. That's one of his great interview techniques. He gets people to talk about their point of view, and then he asks relevant questions. And you remember when the media used to do that, and it, it wasn't a podcast comedian who did that sort of thing? And now the media is this, this just obnoxious, lecturing, preaching, clearly agenda-driven entity that people have lost all faith in and just find distasteful. You know? and, and Rogan just seems like a regular guy at a bar who's just talking about these issues. And it's practically the only place that you can find anymore where people are able to just talk about the issues. Now, one other place, ironically, is Bill Maher's show. You know, Bill Maher, the leftist comedian? Oh, yeah. But, but he's, you know, the, the thing I like about this guy, kind of like RFK, who's also on the left and a liberal, but he's an honest guy. You know, I mean, he's, he's open to reason. He respects facts. And you can have a civil conversation with this guy. And I think Americans, by and large, want nothing more than to have a civil, honest conversation without this rancid, Jacobite, shrieking political stuff that just is everywhere on all the major media platforms. Yeah, it's it's very clear what what terrifies uh, the powers that be about Rogan is his influence. And and mm-hmm. I, I just pray that Rogan is the guy who is, is opening the door for other people, other platforms, you know, outside of that, uh, that uh, echo chamber of uh, all that's official. Um, hopefully, hopefully well, I think he has. You know, the other day... I can't remember the man's name, but whoever the CEO of Rumble is, publicly uh, talked about the offer that he made to Rogan that if he wants to jump ship from Spotify, he'll pay him $100 bucks, put up all of his old podcasts. There won't be any woke uh, censorship of anything that he's got to say. So come on down. The water's fine. Well, it's, it's very illustrative for anybody who's paying attention. And I feel bad. You pointed out last week, you know, well, it's too bad Rogan bent the knee. And, wow, yeah. he, has, he has not found any favor with the woke crowd, you know, or the enforcers by trying to appease them. Well, it's a lesson for him. My sense of him, and I've not met the man, but I think I've got a pretty good sense of him. I think he's a decent guy, and I think most decent people, when they feel as though they have offended somebody, their instinctive reaction is, "Hey, man, I didn't mean to. You know, I didn't mean to get you upset. That wasn't my intent, right? Uh, you know, they want to have like a reasonable accommodation of some kind. But then there's this come to Jesus moment that, that people begin to have. People like Rogan, people like you and me, when we realize that there's no amount of genuflecting and apology that's going to satisfy these people. What they what they want is our destruction. What they want is complete and total submission of our minds and everything else to whatever their point of view is. And if we don't do that, the apology tour never ends. Well, I'm happy, for one, to, to see the, the narrative crumbling. It's, it's kind of fun to see politicians looking around nervously. I think this also represents kind of a dangerous time in that um, you had mentioned the word desperation before. Yeah. And who knows, you know, what, what will be the next crisis they'll latch on to to regain that, that power that's slipping through their fingers? Well, I think that's a very real concern. You know, my girlfriend and I were talking about it this morning, actually. And, you know, it's, if these people, and by these people I mean people like Fauci, all of the people who are behind Fauci, all of the Gesundheitsführers who imposed the lockdowns and did so much damage to so many people's lives, 
if they begin to worry that uh, it may not just be that they have to shuffle off the political stage and go off to a nice remunerative quiet retirement somewhere, sort of like George W. Bush painting at his ranch in, Tex- in, in, in Texas, but that there may actually be criminal inquiries and prosecutions of these people and that they might actually have to suffer real consequences, yeah, they're going to get desperate. Yeah, uh, the possibility of them doing something just mind-bogglingly awful, I think, is a real one, and we should keep our eyes open to that. Absolutely. So uh, any other encouraging news that you're seeing as, as far as uh, as far as the, the lockdowns, the mandates, and so forth uh, starting to, yeah, to ratchet all back? over the place. All over the place. I think the biggest and, and most heartening is this Freedom Convoy up in Ottawa, in Canada, where, uh, you know, the truckers have, have pretty much forced uh, the, 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 the pomaded dictator of Canada, Trudeau, to hide in his bunker somewhere and resort to the same pathetic, desperate, last-ditch uh, accusations of, uh, of, of racism and transphobia and all of the rest of it uh, as, as the last thing that he's got in his arsenal against these people. In fact, the other day he said something about these, these peaceful protesters, these truckers who are just trying to make a point about how they can't make a living anymore, are a threat to democracy of all things. You know, they're just doing what you're, what is the most fundamental thing about living in a supposed democracy? It's to make your grievances peacefully known, right? Sure. Now, and Trudeau has characterized that as a threat to democracy. Because again, for the left, uh, the threat is that you disagree with them, that you, you know, that you give any voice whatsoever to any disagreement with anything that they have to say. That constitutes a, th- a threat to democracy as they define it. Well, it's, it's nice on the one hand <clears throat> to be vindicated, you know, for, for uh, I, I'm resisting the urge so far to say I told you so. But uh, I'm just yeah. one, I'm one of many voices out there who've been been trying to talk common sense for a long time. How are you feeling about it? Are you are you keeping your ego in check when when you could be rubbing their noses in it? Well, no, you know I I, I really am trying to. Uh, you know I don't say I told you so. Uh, I just continue to point out the facts and I continue to point out the the doubling and tripling down of the hysteria by these people who you know one of the things that's most off putting about them is that on the one hand. They will characterize people like you and I, Rogan, Malone, as peddlers of misinformation, and yet they're the greatest peddlers of misinformation, and they never get called on it. You know, not by not by the entities that serve as the PR organs for these people, meaning the media. That's what I call them. They're not a media. They're PR people. Uh, you know, they, they tell us, you know, for example, Biden, uh, get vaccinated. If you get vaccinated, you can't get the Rona and you can't right. spread the Rona. That was absolutely untrue. Uh, you know, 95% effective. Well, now it's what, 45% effective, multiple jabs, the way they've suppressed all of the horrific side effects that have come with these vaccines. You, that's misinformation, isn't it? Hold that thought, Eric. We're going to come back and talk about that as well as some other very relevant stuff. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. These are the sponsors of my program. They make it possible for me to sit down and have conversations like I'm having right now with my friend Eric Peters from EPAutos.com. 
And Eric, you cover so much automotive stuff. Uh, frankly, there's, there's, I would not, I would not look at a, a particular vehicle, especially a new vehicle, without first consulting your website. But you also have a pretty solid slant on freedom. And something you warned about was this uh, mm-hmm. coming digital driver's license. Talk to me about yeah. that. Well, what they're wanting to do is the, the next elaboration of this idea that you know somehow uh, you have to have the government's permission to use what were formerly considered to be the public rights of way, uh, and that you had a natural right to use without the state's permission. Well, they got us to accept this idea of having a driver's license and that driving or that operating on the public roads now is a privilege rather than a right. But at least it was just a driver's license. Then it became kind of an ID. It got to the point where, uh, you know, it's very hard to get a job or to open a bank account, let's say, without presenting your, you know, and I put it in air fingers, quotes, driver's license, which is now an ID. Well, the next form is to make it a requirement that you have an app on your cell phone, which means you have to have a cell phone, a smartphone. Uh, that will store this digital ID, which can then be used not only as an ID, but it can be used for many other things besides. In fact, it can be used for practically anything. You know, it, it would be very effective as a tool to enforce these vaccine passports, for example. You know, you have to flash your digital ID along with your Vax Pass. And, of course, all of this stuff, unlike the driver's license that's in your wallet, is wired up and connected, uh, you know, so that uh, you're being monitored. You know, that's something your driver's license doesn't do right now. But if you carry a smartphone with you, you're being monitored. You're being tracked. That phone knows where you are at any given moment because it's GPS enabled. Uh, It data mines you constantly. Um, It keeps track of all of your doings. And now they want to embed and enmesh your driver's license into the smartphone and make that basically your digital cattle tag that you have to have stamped into your ear in order to go out and walk around. That's spooky. I mean, look, yeah, it it's, is. it's bad enough. And you point this out in the article that, you know, at first the driver's license was was simply, you know, this was proof that you have government permission to, to drive yep. on the roadways. But it has become your ID. And good luck, you know, opening a bank account, getting a job, things like this, without uh, without a driver's license. That's right. And I, I think... What we need to question is the fundamental issue of whether this is a, a proper, rightful, moral thing to require of people, that, you know, that you should have to produce ID. You know, and ironically enough, you think about it, you know, the same government that's imposing ever more restrictive requirements on us with regard to ID uh, is very blasé, very insouciant about uh, ID requirements when it comes to, oh, illegal aliens voting, right? Just show up. You don't have to produce an ID, uh, and you can you can exercise the franchise. You can you can do that without an ID. But God help you if you want to buy some over-the-counter cough syrup as an American citizen, then you got to present your ID. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just the paranoid goof that uh, that uh, you know people would would like to think that I am. But this this seems to me like just more of that camel's nose coming through the tent door. Well, it should be obvious by now. You know what they're emulating. What they're and when I say they, I think it's you know it's clear the entities that are attempting to consolidate everything into a worldwide technocratically managed administrative government of some kind. What they're seeking to do here is the same thing they've already done in China, which is to implement this digitized panopticon in which everybody is constantly surveilled. The government knows everything about everything that you do. And you're only allowed to do those things which the government gives you permission to do. And that permission uh, is, is, is something that has to constantly be reaffirmed via this social credit scheme that they have. 
So, for example, you know, over there, if you aren't uh, obedient and you haven't gotten a vaccine or you don't wear a mask or you don't abide by whatever the rule is, they can just simply digitize, digitally turn off your, your conditional privileges. You know, your ID is no longer valid. Your, uh, your, your ability to buy things because you've got digital currency, a digital yuan now, you can't buy anything because they've shut off your access to your money. And that's exactly what they want to do here. And they want to consolidate everything into one bag because once they do that, it's so much easier to control than having to control discrete, individual, specific other things that aren't connected to each other. So effectively, you can become an unperson. Sure. And we see this. It's no longer some kind of hyperbolic uh, conspiracy theory. It's conspiracy fact. This is what they're doing already in China. They've begun to implement similar things in Europe where you have to flash your barcode uh, vax pass using your phone in order to function in society. And I think that uh, we're very foolish if we allow anything like that, uh, any of the precursors to that to be set up here, i.e. this phone thing. You know, in, you should have the option to have or not have a cell phone in order to function in life. Uh, they want to make it such that if you don't have that cell phone, you're essentially locked out of, of normal society because you can't, you know, you just can't function without the thing. Uh, it, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that way. And more fundamentally, I think we need to readdress this question of having to beg permission of the government in order to exercise what have historically for generations of humankind been understood to be natural rights, like the natural right to travel without permission, the natural right to use the public right-of-way. The government doesn't own those. We own those in common. Wow. And I, I'm thinking about uh, some of the things that were done in New Zealand and Australia where, uh, you know, the police would send a text message to someone. You have 15 minutes to verify your location yes. to make sure you're obeying. See, yeah. that kind of tyranny becomes so much easier when everybody's identity is now tied to their cell phone. It tracks their can location, you just like it? you I said. Mean, can you imagine being compelled to carry that thing around with you, knowing that some entity, whether it's the government, whether it's corporations, whether it's both of them, are able to know in real time where you are at any given moment, uh, are able to perhaps listen into your conversations, are able to, uh, to, to see what you're doing through the camera. Uh, in other words, just the end of privacy. You have been reduced via technology to the status of a prisoner in a cell, you know, where they have cameras and guards and they're watching you at all the time. And that's the, isn't that the fundamental essence of being a prisoner? You have no freedom to act. You are under constant and complete control. And that is what they're seeking to impose on free people who are not criminals. And it seems like one of the big pieces of the puzzle, which I'm also hearing a lot of agitation for, is uh, now if we can just get people onto a completely digital currency. I mean, that, sure. would, that would sew it up nice and tight. Okay, they've got you as, as, as tightly as they want you. Yeah, it's critically important that people uh, understand the danger uh, of the convenience lure. You know, yeah, it's convenient, you know, to not have to carry around paper dollars and coins. Uh, and, you know, oh, you know, it's hard for them to, to, to steal my money because only I have the access code or whatever it is so that you can make purchases with your phone. But you have just given control over your economic life to the government, to the corporations, to these banking institutions, which can and will, uh, you know, shut off your ability to transact. And also, fundamentally, to, you know, they're going to know every last aspect of any uh, any financial dealings you have, down to whether you bought a can of Coke. You know, and it's it's not about oh, have you got any? You don't, if you don't have anything to hide. You don't have to worry about. Do you do you want to live in a society where some corporation or the government literally knows every detail of every transaction that you have made? 
and has the ability to uh, make you an unperson by the flip of a switch, you know, and, right. and making your account, uh, you know, rendering it, uh, you know, out of order. Yeah, you know, and let's talk bluntly, too. Many of us have a side gig, you know, maybe a cash side gig where we get mm-hmm. a little bit of extra money to make up for all the money that's taken from us by the government. Well, that goes away, too. Uh, you know, if you're a waitress, let's say, you know, you're getting a little bit of extra tip money. Uh, now the uh, the I you know who is going to know about every last cent <laughs> that 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 you got and tax you accordingly. Uh, all of this is again for two purposes. It's to it's to fleece and pluck even more the goose, which is us, the middle and working classes, and uh, to force us to be constantly in fear of being punished in order to make us obedient, in order to make sure. That we don't do things like, oh, those truckers out in Ottawa. Right. Uh, you know, if you knew, you know, they're going to shut down your ability to pay your bills or to uh, or to be paid. It makes you a little bit more reluctant to get in your truck and drive down to Ottawa to complain about being forced to get vaccinated, doesn't it? Eric, I appreciate your take each and every week. Thank you so much for joining us today. You bet, Brian. Happy to be here. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You'll know that I mention my sponsors each time that we do the program, and it's important you understand that these are the folks who help keep the wolves away from the door so that I can do what I do, whatever that is. I tell my wife I'm working, just go with it, okay? Don't don't let on that uh, I'm enjoying this. Anyway, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College. They are one of our sponsors, and uh, Shannon, I understand you are you're about to become a very busy guy here in the next few days. Yeah, th- this week we've got um, we've got a lecture series. It's four or five days of lectures all up and down I fifteen. Yep. So let's uh, let's talk for just a moment. I want to hit this at the beginning and at the end of, of our segment here. Um, talk to me about the dates and places where you're going to be, so so those who are near them can can clear their social calendars and hopefully attend and, and hear you speak. Sure, and and you, you probably have this in the show notes from the last episode we did. So you, you'll put this in again, probably? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, great. So February 9th, uh, which is Wednesday, we'll be in Cedar City um, from seven. Uh, we start at seven and that's at the visitor center there in, in Cedar. Um, on the 10th, we're in Spanish Fork. That's at a, uh, a some good friends of mine, Abigail's Oven in Spanish Fork. Uh, and that starts at seven as well. Um, on the 11th, we're up in Roy. We're at the Southwest Library. Um, starts at 10 a.m., in the morning, and then that evening in Layton, uh, we're at um, the home of Dr. Travis Slade. He's got a huge uh, uh, kind of educational room there, and I've held events in there before, 50, 60 people, so it was great. That starts at 7, and then fr- and then uh, Saturday, uh, the 12th of February, we're going to be in Manti. We'll be at the Manti City Center, and that starts at 1, uh, and I'll be also working with uh, Dean Sessions, and that particular event will be sharing the stage talking about universal model. Okay. So the, the focus of these, these lectures, and there is no cost to attend these, right? This is Correct. Free, free of charge. You're going to be Correct. talking about the new economy. And, and a lot of people may not realize this, but, uh, but understanding what's happening economically is becoming very, very important. Why is that? Well, you know, um, it was really funny because I was posting some, some things on, on our YouTube channel and, I don't know how I found it, but I found an advertisement that I did, a video I did about seven, eight years ago. And I was using the phrase new economy back then. 
And that's because um, for those who kind of watch this stuff, who are, you know, the kind of the economic nerds, um, and I, I, I kind of fall in that category a bit, um, you know, we watch stuff and then you start talking about, well, if this fo- follows the same track that it's on now, down the road, it, it could look like this maybe, right? Well, very, very unfortunately, uh, what we've been projecting and what the talking heads out there have pro- been projecting is actually coming to fruition. Um, in, in a lot of ways, um, you could use the, the terminology that's being used today. It's called the, the, the Great Reset. I've heard that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not and, sure I'm uh, a fan of it, but I've definitely heard it. Well, you know, and, and if you kind of look at this stuff dispassionately, don't get all freaked out about it. There's plenty to be freaked out about. But if you, if you don't get freaked out about it, you just look at it and kind of break it into pieces. You go, okay, I can see this happening. I see this happening. These are coming together. And having watched this all this time, and of course, in my role as a president of a college, I'm thinking about, okay, fine, I have all these crazy things happening in the world, maybe, you know, the Great Reset, the pandemic, all these things. Yeah, but my kids are coming out of of a program we do here, and they just want to go, you know, have income and have a home and start a family, right? They're not too worried about all this other stuff at the moment. So what can we do to put them, uh, to give them a solution that deals with their local uh, and very personal scenarios, but also still addresses these global issues. And that's what we've come up with with the new economy. I think if, if I had to sum it up, I see a great deal of instability, not just you know in America, but, but globally. I see a great deal of in, economic instability. But what I also hear you talking about is, is a message of there, there is a way to garner that stability starting at the individual and family level and letting it spread from there. And I'm a big fan of stuff that doesn't come from the top down because it seems like that, that gets co-opted way too easy. Well, it is. And, and if, if you don't have an eye on, on the big picture here, you can get really freaked out and you can scream and yell and hold your breath, but you can only do that for so long. You cannot keep that intensity up. So we, wanna, we wanted to create a program that allowed these kids to, to uh, deal with the realities, the very quick changing realities that they have to deal with and deal with the fact that they want to start a family and all those things. And so we created this five-step program called the New Economy. Um, uh, if you want, I'll just go through the steps. Real yeah, quick. Walk us, walk us through them. So um, the, the, the first phase of this is what we call higher education. Okay. And for us, that means library education. Um, and, and we spend some time walking through why you actually need a, a liberal arts education or what we call a library education, which takes the liberal arts and the manual arts, puts them together and you, you get this very unique kind of education. I just was talking with a with a kid the other day, uh, um, last night, in fact, um, who's going to Hillsdale. And, and you know, I love Hillsdale. Hillsdale's a great school. And and he called, and he was asking about this question or that question. And so we went on. We spent about an hour on the phone talking about classes he was in. His mom called me later and said, hey, you know, um, he really he's really enjoying Hillsdale. It's great. But he asked his professor a question, and then he asked you the same question uh, a couple of days later, and you guys gave almost exact same answers, except that you gave an answer with all the history behind it, all the different angles it impacted it, all these different things. And he said it just blew him away that he was a- that that you were able to have such a, a a grasp of history and how it impacts things. That's what we're talking about with higher education because it does impact your family, it does impact your income, it impacts everything. You've got to have this great liberal arts and manual arts education combined. That's the first phase. Second phase is 
what we call um, uh, uh, it's well, it's it's the second phase. And here's what happens. So basically, you get your higher education, you complete that phase, and you go into phase two. Phase two. And this may sound crazy, Brian, but phase two is where we tell you to go back home, live in your parents' basement, and eat their food. Okay. And while you're doing that, and I know, I pause for effect. And while you're doing that, you go get two, three, four jobs, whatever it takes, and you bust your butt, and you raise thirty dollars or $40,000 as fast as you possibly can. Now, I don't know a parent out there who, if that's what you said, mom and dad, I want to stay in your basement. I'm not going to be sleeping down there much. Um, I want to eat your food because I got to raise $30,000 or $40,000 as fast as I can, hopefully in the next six to 10 months. Now, what happens is when they do that, now, again, if they're going to our school, they have no debt coming out, right? And they went and got a job. But in a matter of six to 10 months, they now can approach the world and all their other plans from a position of cash not a position of debt. That's a very, very different scenario than what the average college graduate's d- d- doing today. Brian, I'm, I'm going really fast. Feel free to j- jump in no, here. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing the wisdom of it. I mean, look, how many, how many people out there who've just earned their law degrees are making people's coffee for them as a barista? Because, you know, right. the, the jobs and the, the student loans have to be paid back. And, you know, so this, this makes sense. Now, that's probably kind of a hard sell because that, that sounds like it involves some sacrifice, but uh, I don't know. Shannon experience is teaching me that uh, sometimes the best things in life come when you're willing to sacrifice that short-term immediate gratification right. for something that matters a lot more and staying out well, of debt. And, seems like that's a very important thing right now. Well, it is. And, and what we, what we tell the students is look at there's quality of life and our standard of living. We're asking you, we're suggesting that you sacrifice a little bit of standard of living for a lot of quality of life. And when they get this and they hear this for four years, this is a no brainer for them. Okay. So in that phase two, once they get that cash and again, six to 10 months, they've got it nailed. Then they secure a piece of land. We spend a whole lot of time on campus walking them through how to buy the right kind of land. What do you need to be able to produce for all the needs you, that you have? We also work with them on how to develop some temporary housing. This can be a $2,000 thing or a $20,000 thing. We, we recommend the $2,000 thing. So as soon as they raise their money, six to 10 months, by the time that's done, they've secured land and they have temporary housing. Now they're living on their land, Brian, with no debt. And they're, they're, they're completely contained on their land with no debt. Now they start their business. Now they start growing food. Now they start building and planning out and building phase one of the permanent home. That's all phase two. Phase three is where now you've been doing your business for four or five years. You've been providing this, this product, but now you've got to become an expert at it. You've got to be able to share this with other people. You've got to be able to expand your business, grow more food, um, and finish Take all the extra funds you have and finish that permanent house so that somewhere in there, within the first five to 10 years, you're no longer living in that temporary house. You're now in your permanent house that is what? Yeah, debt-free. And then phase four is that you are now become this huge resource for your community, but you're doing it. Now, here's the crazy part. You're 34 years old, 35 years old. You have land debt-free. You have a home debt-free. You have a business debt-free that produces five or 10 times more than what you need. And you are now a massive resource for your community. That's what we're calling the new economy. Hold that thought. We got to take a real quick break. We got to pay a couple bills here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Grab a pencil and paper if you would. 
Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College is my guest. He will be telling you where he will be speaking in the upcoming days. You might want to make a note because if it's close to you, it would be worth your time to find yourself in that audience. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Shannon Brooks from MonticelloCollege.org is on the line with me. We're talking about a speaking engagement and a message that he is taking out across much of the state of Utah here in the next week or so. And also, we're going to, uh, I want to know a little bit more about uh, phase four. I, we we kind of had to hurry because the end of the, the last segment was coming up, but you walked us through the first three phases. Phase four. So a person has, has uh, they've got a good classical LIBOR education. They have uh, put away thirty dollars to $40,000. They're debt-free. They've bought land. They have uh, secured dwelling and, and are working on permanent dwelling. Where, where do we pick up on phase four here? Yes. Yeah, so f- phase four is, is now you're, you're in your mid-30s and uh, you're stable. I mean, you're so secure financially, it's, it's not, not even funny. Because remember, you've built a business that's based on your local economy. So it doesn't matter. Um, there, there's, there's some concepts going around right now. It's called, um, it's called ESG, uh, Environmental, Social, and Governmental Policies. You're starting to see this happen with, uh, we saw this with COVID. You're starting to see this with a lot of corporations where they're using these criteria to establish whether they'll give you loans, whether they'll support your business or not, whether you're canceled or not. When you do things locally, you avoid all of that. So we're encouraging these guys to build businesses that meet needs locally, say within a 50 mile radius. So when you've done that, you've got your home and your land all secure. Uh, um, maybe you're a, you're a 501c3, you're a nonprofit, or you're a for-profit, whatever works for your scenario, whatever you're doing. Now you are an asset to your community. Um, you, 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 know, you, you, you get involved politically. Now that doesn't mean part necessarily, but it does mean making sure, because you now have the time, making sure that, that your county commissioners are doing what they're supposed to be doing, making sure they're, they're, they're following the criteria that, that they're given, making sure that your community and your area, maybe your entire county, is um, is providing the greatest liberty and freedom for everyone. And you've got the time to do that. You can go up to the state capitol and spend, you know, three or four weeks up there d- during a session. Um, it just it allows you to do all kinds of things. And not only that, there are going to be people coming to your door like crazy, want to know how can they do what you just did. Right. It's, it's, it's that old thing, Brian. At first they laugh at you. Then they uh, then they mock you. Then they attack you and then they join you. Yep. Well, and you've got to be strong, strong enough to be able to, to, to make it through that whole process so you can help people on the other end. You wrote about this trend in your book, American Killing the American Dream. Um, and this is a book I would strongly recommend for anybody who wants to really take a no you know, a, a non-flinching look at uh, at uh, what has been going on, and and it's not gloom and doom. And I hope you've caught up caught on the, with uh, what Shannon's saying here. Um, there, there's great possibilities, but you can't play by the same rules and within the same system right. that everybody currently is is kind of stuck in, and and right. expect to get a different result than, than what we're seeing. And the result right now is there's debt at so many levels, and people are dependent. And um, you know we, we've seen what happens in a crisis situation when you know you're told you either do this or you don't have a job. 
a lot of people have no choice but to bend the knee and, and do what they're told. This sounds like a great way to, to claim your um, autonomy and to, to put it to a very productive use. You know, Brian, I'm so confident about this message and that it works that anybody who comes to our lecture, if you don't like what you hear, we'll give you a full refund. You know, <laughs> your money back. <laughs> Get your money back exactly. Uh, no, it's and and we're we're laughing about this a little bit, but I at the same time I hope that I hope the seriousness and at least the the urgency of look the, there are there are changes there are shifts coming. You and I have talked about uh, fourth turning uh, cyclical uh, methodology of looking at history. We're in a fourth turning right now. We're seeing some Clearly. of these cycles play out, and uh, one thing that a fourth turning is known for is there's there's a fair amount of upheaval. Now, we've been through it before, the American founding, the um, war between the states, the Great Depression, World War II, all of those constituted fourth turnings. And I would just ask our audience, you know, consider how different were things after those problems had subsided, after the climax had come and the, you know, things had settled back down and we were on a a different course. How different did the landscape look? Well, and and here's the real question, uh, Brian. Are you going to be in a position when the dust settles to then lead out and help rebuild. It's gonna get rebuilt one way or the other. Is it gonna be rebuilt through a a global world government approach or is it gonna be done based on liberty? Well, it's only be done based on liberty if we've got a bunch of liberty people in a position to help rebuild. That's that's what we're about. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Something you pointed out to me before we went on the air was that that, uh, catchphrase, the the slogan, build back better. Um, That's not just a, a Joe Biden slogan. No. Tell me oh, about no. who, who else is using that same phraseology? From, from what I've been able to determine, we have other countries that are using phraseology, France, England, Germany, and others perhaps that are starting to get in line. When you have, you know, you have one slogan in one country, it just, you know, it's just a dumb slogan. When you've got a bunch of other countries coming on in Western Europe, adopting the same phraseology, the same principles, the, the same 2030 kind of agenda, um, there's something going on that we're just not aware of yet, and that's a, that, that's a little disconcerting. Again, all more reason to go local. I, I'll be honest, Brian. I just moved all my bank accounts from Wells Fargo to a local credit union because wow. I want to be local. I don't want to be under the control of, of ESG policies. I don't want to be under the control of social um, credit checks, which are coming. They're, they've been going on in, in, in uh, China for 15 years. It's coming here now. That's a whole cancel culture. That's, that's the beginning of all that. I don't want to be subject to that, so I'm going local. And, Shannon, uh, Shannon as, as you have, have helped to develop this message and as you've shared it with people around you, do you find that people struggle with the idea of, of voluntarily lowering their standard of living for a period of time in order to obtain the kind of autonomy that we're talking about? Yeah, you know, those who don't have much to begin with, no, they, they have no problem. It's those who have the really big, nice houses and the big mortgages. They're the ones that struggle with this. And and I'm, I, I want to help anybody, but honestly, I'm focusing on the 20-somethings. And if there's a 30 or 40 or 50-something who wants my help, I'm happy to be there. But I'm not, the older we get and the more we're stuck into these big mortgages and big debts and big expenses, um, they're really tough to get out of. I, I did a program in California, just to be real quick. Um, years ago, I was in 15 different cities, about 500 students where we went through the same program. And what I found was 99% of the people totally understood what I was saying, totally saw the ramifications of it, and were totally so deep into their debt, they could not see how to get out. And so 
and that was the 50, 60 age range, right? 40, 50, 60 age range. So I'm, if I get a 40 year old that calls me and says, help me, I, I'm on it, but i just find that they struggle. So I'm working on, on, you know, generation Z. That's kind of who I'm working with right now. And, and, you know, the, the, the younger millennials, that's, that's our focus. I think it's important to point out, this is not just, you know, a course of action that you're advocating. This is what you ought to do. And you should do this. This is a course that you have actually traveled yourself. You've walked the walk here. Yeah. 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 I I live in a tiny home right now, so I can be debt free. And uh, Julie and I are out of debt, took us, 35 years to get out of debt, but we're out of debt all because I believe what we're talking about here. And, and, you know, the problem with, with, with difficult times and challenges that you've mentioned earlier, the problem with is, is they're hard to see when they're coming, if you're not really looking strongly. Mm-hmm. And once they hit, you're screwed. Once they hit, there's nothing you can do about it. You're stuck in the situation you're in. We're really encouraging people to rethink what they're doing and to find local non-debt ways to to live because that's really going to make the difference between who survives and thrives and who struggles and you know struggles you gotta be you gotta be ahead of the curve on this one you gotta be ahead of the curve yep absolutely let's uh, let's revisit the the places and dates where you're going to be speaking again just so those who want to attend can can attend can you walk us through that sure yeah february uh this is wednesday this is this week wednesday the 9th um february 9th cedar city it's at 7 p.m. at the Visitor Center in Cedar City. Uh, February 10th, which is Thursday, will be in Spanish Fork. Again, 7 p.m., Abigail's Oven. It's right there in Spanish Fork. You can find it easy. Um, February 11th, we're in Roy. We're at the Southwest Library in Roy at 10 a.m. Uh, and then that evening, um, February 11th, we're in Layton at 7 p.m. at Dr. Travis Slade's home. It's on Church Street. And again, Brian, I'm sure you'll have all this stuff in, in the notes. And then um, Saturday, February 12th, will be in Manti. We'll be at the City Hall in Manti. Starts at 1 p.m. And I'll be speaking there, sharing the podium with Dean Sessions, the author of a fantastic program that we used on our campus called Universal Model. Okay. I actually have the book on that. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, she, you got to get volume two. You got to okay. get volume two. Yeah, yeah, I think I've just got the introduction, but but uh, yeah, okay. very fascinating stuff. Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College, thank you so much for visiting with us. Thank you for being a sponsor of this program. I um, This is the probably first chance I've really taken to, to thank you publicly for it, but I, I appreciate you doing what you can to, to help us get the message out, and I hope it's overflow standing room only <laughs> for each of these lectures. Thanks, Brian. Sure appreciate it. is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This program exists because we live in a time where people who are seeking truth 
are having to face down individuals and organizations who have made it their purpose in life to keep you from finding the truth. Now, hopefully I'm not one of those uh, individuals or organizations, but yeah, you got you got your work cut out for you if you want to keep your grip on reality. And uh, that doesn't mean you have to respond or, or, or only embrace, you know, Republican reality or Democrat reality. It's the idea that during times of crisis, the best thing that we can do, in fact, the most important thing we can do as citizens is to think clearly and independently. So I'm here to provide you with the best information I can find. I have great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, Sewing and Quilting Center, HSLAmmo.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. So let's talk about uh, what's going on with, uh, with so many political leaders right now. And, and the, the conventional wisdom right now, and I, I think there's probably some truth to this one, is that uh, particularly Democrats and, and candidates and, and people who are in, uh, in positions of, of public authority, you know, especially elected officials, seem to be doing this remarkable and, and very clear about-face on lockdown policies, masks, mandates, vaccines, the whole nine yards. And it kind of has to make you wonder, okay, has the memo gone out? Because it's, it's across so many different states, cities, municipalities. But the rumor is that uh, there has been a lot of internal polling going on and uh, what, what Democratic candidates, especially those who are going to have to run for re-election, are starting to realize is that the people, just the average person, John and Joe Public, or Jane and Joe Public, sorry, <laughs> You can say there was a woke reference if you want. I don't care. But uh, they, uh, they're they fed up with it. And, and I think there are a number of politicians who are recognizing a massacre at the polls, as in the voting polls, is very likely approaching. So politicians are doing what they can. They're, in the words of Jordan Schachtel, they are seeking a clean exit from the sunk costs of COVID mania. So they're getting nervous. I'm thinking that's actually a good thing. Here's what Jordan Schachtel has to say on his uh, dossier substack. He says, after two years of empowering every aspect of the authoritarian insanity that is COVID mania, the American ruling class has started to awaken to the reality that the citizens have had enough of the safety regime's tyrannical edicts. So here's some examples. Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey announced that New Jersey will, which, by the way, is not exactly MAGA country, will no longer require children to wear masks in school. Schachtel says these barbaric mask policies, which remain entirely unsupported by actual scientific evidence, have been in place much of safety in, been in place in much of safety regime compliant America for the last two years. So the new policy, and the governor's sudden embrace of reality is a vast departure from Murphy's previous insistence that COVID must be entirely eliminated in order to, for a society to return to normal. So what he's saying right now is, effective March 7th, the statewide mask mandate in schools will be lifted. Balancing public health with getting back to some semblance of normalcy is not easy, but we can responsibly take this step due to declining COVID numbers and growth in vaccinations. Well, what a reasonable approach. Here's what he was saying in August of 2020. 
New Jersey has now lost 14,134 members of our broad and diverse family to COVID-19. In their memories, we must continue to do all that we can to fight this pandemic. We cannot give up until the number is zero. So, yeah, he took a pretty hard line. In order for this, uh, in order for uh, the fight for the vi- against the virus to be over, the COVID deaths have to go to zero. Now, Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents a 70-30 Democratic district in Los Angeles, struck a similar tone in his messaging, going as far as to acknowledge natural immunity to COVID-19. Now, acknowledging natural immunity, that was once a great sin. And it still remains greatly upsetting to the Branch Covidians who remain true believers. Ted Lou says, with the rapid decline in Omicron, pandemic restrictions will be lifted sooner rather than later. When considering, in considering when to do so, health officials must factor in natural immunity, not just vaccination rates. This CDC chart uh, recognizes natural immunity, and so should health officials. Whoa, what? The CDC is actually recognizing it now? Amazing. Although I think I was just listening, and, and I think uh, yesterday I heard that Govern, Governor Newsom's plan is, we'll, we'll lift the mask mandates for everybody except the unvaccinated. So if you're still one of those people who hasn't done what you've been told to do, you know, you've got you've to wear a visible symbol. I guess the uh, idea of a yellow star pinned to your shirt was a little too obvious, so you got to at least wear the mask so we know who we're dealing with, who, who the unclean are and who needs to be segregated from, you know, polite society. Now, Jordan Schachtel says the White House has mentioned that polling exists, showing restrictions are becoming deeply unpopular. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said on Monday, the polling shows that public is tired of COVID. This is her direct quote. We certainly understand and have seen in polling that the public is tired of COVID. We understand that. So are we. She says they're in constant touch with public health experts about updating guidelines. Because, you know, those experts that we've trusted who've been wrong about, well, quite a lot of things actually over the last couple of years, well, only they can tell us when it's going to be safe. And, of course, their paychecks depend upon keeping us in power so that uh, they remain our preferred experts. Even noted COVID critic, hysteric Leanna Wen, who's routinely advocated for a two-tiered segregation system that discriminates against the unvaccinated, has acknowledged that the restrictions might need to come to an end. This one was retweeted. IT guy retweeted this and says, P.S., here's another one. Memo clearly went out. Leanna Wen says, in the coming days, we will see many governors and local leaders lift mask mandates. This is the right step. And marks a needed shift from government-imposed requirement to individual decision. It helps to preserve public health authority for when it's needed again. Oh, for when they trot out the next variant, for instance. So uh, maybe this is a way of trying to to maintain some degree of credibility or at least some degree of, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Relevance (laughs) In, in our lives when people have just put their foot down and said, enough. Schachtel says the pattern is obvious. The polling must be really bad for the restrictionists. This ruling class is indeed seeking the exits to protect their power, and they'll attempt to do so without acknowledging that this two-year campaign of destruction was all for nothing. 
Here's a tweet from the Washington Examiner. It's actually a story here. A slow drift of Democratic state and local leaders away from emergency COVID-19 measures comes as polling shows voters are growing impatient with restrictions. From Denver to Chicago, here are some of the restrictions that could be lifted shortly, and they go into greater detail. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but I think we can count this as a pretty positive development. Now, it's, it's you know... It's not so positive the fact that, okay, politicians are doing whatever they can to save their oily hides. Well, I think, I think that much is to be expected. But clearly, there is, uh, there is a form of writing on the wall that they are seeing that the patience of the public is coming to an end. I have to believe that, in part, the situation with the truckers up in Canada is one of the catalysts that has set this in motion to where politicians, not just in Canada, not just that frightened little boy of a prime minister who's been hiding from his people and throwing the worst accusations at them, but uh, political leaders the world over are starting to recognize, you know what, the people are feeling the weight of what we've been putting on them. And they're no longer scared enough that they'll do what we say because, well, it's just the unknown. It's the fear of what is this virus going to do? So this is a good thing. But it's also, in my opinion, a time to be extremely cautious and very cognizant about, uh, about what else is going on. Power is so seductive. It's so addictive. And the people who are wielding it right now and who know that uh, their grasp on it is getting more tenuous by the day, I mean, I, I don't have a clue what they might do to, again, demonstrate to us why we need them. But I'm fairly confident that given the opportunity, they would not let another crisis of any sort go to waste. So check out Jordan Schachtel's article. It's posted in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Feel free to subscribe if you would like. All I need is your email address, and I'll send you a copy every morning as I publish my show notes. Stick around. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by lifesavingfood.com. I don't know why, but uh, food storage, I have found, is one of the keys... To having peace of mind in times where a lot of stuff seems unpredictable. And one of the things that I would say could be unpredictable is, you know, if if there's a possibility of a big truckers protest here in the U.S., there's a very good possibility you and I could learn what it's like to not have the option of just traipsing down to the grocery store or Costco or anywhere else to get whatever it is we need. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm just, look, I'm trying to acknowledge the reality. Right now in Canada, the truckers essentially are, um, for, for many intents and purposes, they are near a general strike. And maybe that's what it's going to take to get the Canadian government to start taking them seriously. But we could see something very similar here. My point is simply this. Have something to get you through a period where there may be some instability in, in the supply chain. So 
If you want to check out lifesavingfood.com, here's what you'll find is a terrific selection of shelf life uh, foods with a 25-year stable shelf life that you can buy with confidence. And whatever you buy, as you click on the link, as you come from my website, you get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. So there's a little added incentive. That's lifesavingfood.com. You know, I talk a lot about the need to stay rooted in reality. And and that's as much for me as it is for anybody else. I'm not, you know, going to pretend I'm the only one who sees what's going on here. And, you know, everybody else is, is wandering around <laughs> blindly feeling their way along. I think all of us have our work cut out for us to, to stay tethered to reality and not to get set adrift in a sea of misinformation. And I'm not just talking Joe Rogan misinformation. I'm talking official misinformation. Paul Rosenberg has a marvelous essay about why rooting in reality is essential to maintaining our sense of right and wrong. And he makes the case that this is one of the greatest gifts that we can give our children is to root them in reality. Now, he says, I know that's an odd statement, but I'll explain it momentarily. But he says, after many years spent trying to figure out what makes a positive difference in life, and especially in those few crucial moments upon which lives turn, he says, I'm convinced that this is central. Rosenberg says, in critical moments when all else has been swept away, we are thrown back to our root beliefs. And whatever stands in our personal holy of holies will determine our choices. In those moments, whatever we've enthroned in ourselves, whatever we've planted and encouraged to seek deep roots, will carry the day. If then we've become rooted in authority, we're going to do what authority directs. If we become rooted in fitting in, then we're going to do what it takes to fit in. If we've rooted in hierarchy, we'll obey whichever hierarchy is dominating that time and place. And his point is none of these are creative. They're responses of placeholders and servants. But he says, if we have rooted in reality, we'll be able to observe reality, to compare, remember, and choose, not just between the options presenting themselves, but whatever additional options we can imagine. And he says, this is how humanity moves itself forward. When a moment of truth falls upon us, what has been cultivated in us turns the tide. And he says, there are few better gifts a parent can give their child than to start rooting them in reality. He says, over our lives, we develop specific routines, routines built around whatever we've accepted as the most essential to us. Now, these can form haphazardly at first, but by the time we're adults, specific assumptions and expectations have rooted in us. He says, humans are complex creatures, of course, and we carry all sorts of assumptions and influences. Still, we have a very few that stand in our holiest place, our most central place. And what's critically important is that we control what remains in that place. And we do this not with our words, but with our choices, including all the secret choices we make. And he says, please don't think that by secret choices, I mean dark choices. I mean all of our choices, the good mixed equally with the bad. Paul Rosenberg says, what we sow unto, into ourselves, rather, is what ends up standing in the holy place of our core assumptions. We literally train our inner parts with our daily choices. Now, he says, I'm not going to try to establish that scientifically today, but all of us of a certain age have seen it many times. 
Our upbringings affect us, our environments affect us, but it's the choices we make that give us our final shape. Through nearly all of human history, people have looked to overarching patterns when seeking to understand it. Here are just a few examples. For thousands of years, people looked to gods, keeping them unassailable and trying to fit facts and possibilities into their model beneath them. Now, he says many people presently look to theologies in the same way. Now, that's not to say that no divine being may exist, but it is to say that no theology should be treated as God or as a God. He also says people elevate governments to their highest position, fitting everything in below them. People place sources of shame in the center of their consciousness, hoping by remaining ever aware of the shamer, they'll be, available, they'll be able to avoid shame. Many people place causes and movements in their holiest places, fitting ideas into and around them, and then reflexively, meaning unthinkingly, attacking whatever threatens them. Many people have embraced idols, great men or women that they hold on to as a center of reference. But he says what should stand as our center of reference, however, is simply reality, or, said another way, truth. And by that I mean raw, naked, concrete truth, not the truth of the higher pattern. Now, his point here is that there's nothing wrong with holding outside references. And in fact, a great deal has has been preserved or improved by doing so, specifically when people were being manipulated by others. Having something outside to look at, a, a distant star to guide by, well, that matters to us. But even then, in our most essential deliberations, we must look at the real world, not something distant. He says, if we don't look to reality, we end up trying to think through layers of abstractions and images, which slows and distorts our thinking. Words, symbols, and models are not the real world after all. Another problem associated with models is that we too easily accept bundles of ideas as valid, rather than examining them one by one. This also fills us with distortions and filters, again, slowing and distorting our thinking. In the end, all of these replacements for reality discourage us and lead us towards surrender. So, he says, having made what I think is a fairly good case, why referencing reality is better than looking to abstractions or looking to patterns, I want to get to the nuts and bolts of this. People need to know precisely what to do. Our first and most essential step in this, to recognize this in ourselves and in the world is to recognize this in ourselves and in the world. He says, since our eyes are Once our eyes are open to this distinction, we'll stumble upon it frequently, deepening our understanding as we go. So here are some primary points to help. And he says, I've taken these from the work of Abraham Maslow, who trying to make a career of studying the best and healthiest human beings he could find and trying to define the differences that made them better. These are what the healthiest human beings do. They see reality rather than symbols. They seek substance rather than image. They follow their own decisions rather than authority. They take responsibility rather than evading it. They avoid distractions. They work to deserve self-approval. They embrace autonomy. They seek long-term concerns instead of short-term concerns. They fix and face mental prog- mental conflicts as they arise. They judge their success by before and after results, not by comparing themselves to others. And they expect people to change over time and help them to do so. And he says, these are precisely the things that we want to build into our children. So when answering questions, we should go first and primarily 
to the real world, not to what other people have said about the real world. I like his definition of uh, good is that which creates benefit. Bad is that which creates harm. You got a good sense of right and wrong. That's not a bad rule of thumb under which to operate. Check out the link. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I actually had a chance to talk with Heather briefly yesterday, and she has really been busy. Man, the real estate market is still just hopping. People have been getting, uh, you know, traditional loans as well as refinancing because the rates have been ridiculously low. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, there are rumors the feds are going to be raising rates here in the near future. So, you know, the, the window of opportunity for locking in at a nice low rate looks like it's it's going to be coming to a close. I don't know how high rates will go, but just, you know, take that as, uh, as things are, are changing. You know, this might be a good time to talk to her and her team. If you want to do so, call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about apologizing when you have done something wrong. You know, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. If you've legitimately um, injured another person or you've done something wrong, the responsible thing to do is to take responsibility. You know, face it. Yep, that was me. I'm sorry. Admit the apology and then, you know, fix whatever you did. Don't make the same mistake again. Now, at the same time, if you are bending your knee to the woke mob, your apology really isn't going to do much more but encourage them to press harder for even more sanctions or more uh, concessions from you. Got a great article here from uh, Rajan Lad, recounting some of the lessons that we can learn from Joe Rogan's uh, apology spree. And, uh, you know, no, no disrespect to Joe Rogan, okay? This is not... Uh, you know, it's not like, gee, let's let's pick on Joe and make sure that uh, he's feeling really bad about everything. He's been kind of the center of controversy now for a bit, but um, you can learn something from from what he has found out by by trying to appease the woke mob. And it's simply this: Rajan Lod says, consider the following social experiment. There is a hall with a hundred people seated inside. Among them, only five individuals are given megaphones. Next, you seat an audience at a distance such that the only sounds audible from the hall are those emanating from the megaphones. The group then engages in a discussion about Citizen X, whose recent utterances have caused him to be embroiled in a controversy. The five individuals in the hall with megaphones want X banned from public life forever. Now, the remaining 95 people in the hall have varied opinions. Some want X to apologize... And continue, some want him to continue without apologizing. Some think X should refrain from controversial topics. Some people haven't even heard of Citizen X. The people with the megaphone interrupt and heckle anyone who supports X. And after the discussion is finished, you poll the audience about their conclusions from the discussion. 
a vast majority will tell you that almost everyone in the hall wants X canceled. Now, this is an allegory for the recent attacks on Joe Rogan. The detractors are a minority in that uh, they are, they're the people whose voices are amplified by the media and various vested interests. And you have to remember, Rogan has been a target for quite some time for deviating from groupthink. Back in 2019, Rogan caused some controversy by stating the obvious about Biden's rapidly declining cognitive abilities. Last October, Rogan exposed CNN for misrepresenting alternative COVID treatments. Rogan is actually a liberal who supports Bernie Sanders and Michelle Obama, but the micro-mob wants total surrender. They think the recent controversies will enable them to force Rogan out forever, labeling him a racist and anti-vaxxer wacko and damaging him to an extent that no other platform will accept him. Now, the goal is also to make an example out of Rogan and to deter, deter other aspiring rebels. How did Rogan and Spotify react? Well, Rogan has apologized twice. Spotify removed 113 previous podcasts featuring Proud Boys founder Gavin McInnes, Michael Malice, Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, etc. But apologies and capitulation only embolden the mob. In the coming days, expect the mob to find misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic content. Now keep in mind, Rogan has done 1,770 podcasts, most of which are two or three hours. So it isn't too difficult to extract clips and create montages that strip all context. The micro-mob will compel a mass exodus of artists from Spotify, and Spotify will be left with no choice but to sack Rogan. And the lesson here for all is simple. You cannot appeal, or appease rather, an unruly, irrational mob by groveling before it. The merciless micro-mob will not relent until they destroy their target. They can never be won over by kindness or begging for mercy. The only way to prevail is to take them on frontally, ridicule them, and continue to do exactly what you want. But the question remains, what is the future for contrarian voices such as Rogan? They probably have to function independently and operate primarily on money coming from subscriptions. They'll need an IT infrastructure not tied to big tech. If the micro-mob comes a-knockin', they cannot apply their usual tactics of targeting sponsors and compelling big tech to force them off their servers. Now, if there are many such voices, they can form a consortium that will guarantee free speech. Beyond Rogan, this should hopefully convince the small section in the GOP who are skeptical about President Trump rather getting the nomination in 2024 owing to his tone and temperament. They wonder if a better-behaved nominee would be less prone to attacks from the mob. Well, the Rogan controversy proves this isn't just about tone or delivery. The micro-mob just wants to silence any differing perspective. When establishment darlings such as John McCain or Mitt Romney ran for president, they were called racists and bigots too. The difference is they swallowed all the insults with a, an awkward smile. Trump is a rarity in the GOP because he never allows the mob to get away with anything. He almost relished confronting his opponents and relentlessly mocking them. It helps that he does, uh, does it with great humor, and it's this rare fighting spirit he brings to the GOP that actually makes him very popular. A mild-mannered candidate will probably grovel like Rogan and even surrender his agenda. Again, this is from Rajan Lad, 
uh, from American Thinker. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Yeah, you know, I'm not looking to, I'm not looking to any politician to, to save us. And that includes Trump. I'm just not, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, that's probably offending some people. What do you mean, Brian? He's our best and only hope. Look, for four years, the guy did a great job of slowing the role of the juggernaut, the role of Leviathan. And along the way, there were some things he did right. There were some things he didn't. He certainly was not the monster that we were told that he would be. But politics in the meantime has become so toxic that, uh, you know, even within the Republican Party, the, the Trumpers versus the anti-Trumpers, um, there, there, there's such division. I just don't see political solutions being the answer. I think the solutions, and this is just my opinion, so, you know, you don't have to agree. I think the solutions are going to come much closer to home. They're going to be things that you and I implement at the family level, the neighborhood level. Somehow, we're going to have to, we're going to have to figure it out. And we're going to have to do it without politicians. As I mentioned with uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks in the last hour of the show, there's, there's a very good possibility our best efforts are going to be focusing on what comes next as opposed to, you know, what to, whatever politician, you know, we, we're going to put into power. I just don't see it being a, a viable way to change things. I think we are much better off to, to get our own houses in order, to, to basically become the best person that you can become. And I'm, I'm talking about the whole thing. Look, the, the place that I'm looking at right now is... I've got to lose lose my couch potato lifestyle. I spent a lot of time sitting and writing and talking and so forth. I have not been eating right. I have not been exercising right. That's something that's got to change. Why? Because to for me to be the best that I can be, I got to be taking my health a whole lot more seriously. I think this is true about our spiritual health. I think it's true about our intellectual health, our mental health. But I see people who are making that effort, starting with themselves, to simply be the best example of a good, healthy, honest, free person that they can be. And there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that these are people who are having lasting impact on the world and on the people around them. Okay, so you're not reading about them in the newspaper. Big freaking deal. I'm not seeing any headlines. They're not winning Nobel Peace Prizes. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is, as, as Dr. Jordan Peterson would say, before they set out to change the rest of the world and, you know, get it, uh, get it to square itself away, they're getting their own act together. And it starts with little things. Clean your room. Make your bed when you get up. Get your life in order. Start the work there. I promise you're going to see a lot more success in your efforts to shape the world into a better place. And it's an effort I'm trying to put forth myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have more truth to share with you. And in my efforts, I'll try not to be too smooth. 
Because apparently for some people, that's a turnoff. So, you know. If I can stumble, I'll stumble. One thing that I have found really concerning is how the uh, the anti-Rogan operation. Remember when, when the people who were trying so hard to get Joe Rogan to shut up and, and to, to stop, you know, covering things that we don't want him to cover? It used to be about uh, misinformation. That's a, That was the concern. Well, he's it's the lives he's putting at risk because he's putting misinformation out there. Didn't that shift all of a sudden to accusations of racism? Well, it's really he's a racist and therefore you can't believe anything he says. So apparently this wasn't about the science at all. In fact, I've got a great article here from Liz Scheld about how really what it's about is punishing Rogan for his, uh, well, it's punishing him for being influential. This is from American Greatness, and it's uh, this is from uh, yesterday's publication. There, there are two minutes of hate. This is kind of the, this is their, their morning rundown. And Liz Scheld says, you were told Joe Rogan needed to be muzzled because he was spreading and promoting disinformation via his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. The source of his disinformation came from the guests he chose to have on his show. Specifically, the regime's narrative enforcers had an issue with some of the doctors Rogan interviewed about the coronavirus and COVID vaccine. Spotify, who owns Rogan's show, came forward and said they would label some of the episodes of JRE so people were alerted to the dangerous blah, blah, blah and wouldn't unwittingly get exposed to an unapproved scientific opinion. Rogan made a statement saying he would have a more diverse selection of guests as if CNN or any other media operation strives to have a diverse panel of opinions or holds themselves accountable to their fake audiences. Now, she says, that was a mistake, Joe. You can't give these vultures any acknowledgement. It's your show. It's the most popular podcast in the country and probably in the world. No one is forced to listen to it. And those who have an objection to what your guests say are welcome to respond with their own videos or podcasts. But you took the bait. Liz Wilde says, now, imagine my surprise, not really, when the news broke that Rogan has on occasion used the N-word in his comedy material or podcast. In fact, someone took the time to go through the entire Rogan repertoire to make a video with all the instances where the man used the N-word. I thought this was about dangerous anti-science, but whiplash, we're talking about racism. By the way, can I just throw something out there for consideration? If you are a person who is being paid to go through another person's work looking for um, some kind of political infraction, politically correct and incorrect, you know, speech. You're the monster. You probably don't see it, but if, if you're taking pay to try to find something that can be used to deplatform or dethrone another person, you're the bad guy. I don't know who needs to hear that, but there it is. Liswell says, I haven't seen the video because the operation against Rogan isn't about racism. It's about punishing Rogan because he is influential. He isn't parroting the state-sanctioned mythology promulgated by the cathedral. Therefore, he is dangerous. We were initially told that Rogan was a threat to public health because he spoke with certain doctors. When the professional agitators couldn't get Spotify to remove Rogan for COVID speech crimes, they turned to racism. And Liz Weld says, as I said, this isn't about COVID disinformation. It never was. How long before we have a hashtag me too accusation? So to summarize, Rogan is very influential. He's more influential with the public than regime propagandists like the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Sanjay Gupta, Jake Tapper, or Don Lemon. 
He has to be shut down by whatever means proves useful when stirring up public animus. And she says, please don't keep taking the bait, Joe. I hope you have good lawyers. So there's there's one other thing to consider here. It's it's not about misinformation. It's about he is a source of influence that threatens those who want absolute control. And I think he should wear that as a, as a badge of honor. And it's it's kind of sad to see him trying to you know find some middle ground where he can work with with these folks. I I agree. I don't think it's possible. All right, one final thing I wanted to share with you. If you haven't subscribed to Margaret Anna Alice's Substack, you are missing out on some real gems. Like her letter to Justin Trudeau. And the thing I love about her her style of writing is she begins <clears throat> she actually begins this one with with some Shakespeare. And the uh, <clears throat> the the speech about mercy from the Merchant of Venice. Now, if you haven't heard Shakespeare for a while, you need to hear this. This is probably one of the finest things Shakespeare ever wrote. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the tribute to awe and majesty. Wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. She says, hey, Justin, here's some unsolicited advice that may just salvage your legacy from the legendary humiliation you are presently hurling toward at 105 kilometers per hour. I know it's cozy in your bunker. It's easier to maintain your delusions about the Canadian people from your propaganda-lined womb. But you can only feign COVID for so long, especially after you've partaken, since you've partaken in the exceedingly safe and effective injections you're so adamant about foisting upon your subjects. But she says the jig is up, Justin. It's time to stop hiding. It's time to stop lying to the public. It's time to stop lying through the press. It's time to stop lying to yourself. She says, it's time to stop believing your own disinformation. And she's giving examples of this, by the way. Videos, political cartoons, memes that show where Trudeau is, is, uh, is out of step here. It's time to stop treating Canadians with contempt. Here's a tweet from Trudeau. Today in the House, members of Parliament unanimously condemned the anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, homophobia, and transphobia that we've seen on display in Ottawa over the past number of days. Together, let's keep working to make Canada more inclusive. Holy cow, is that the first or last refuge of a scoundrel? Margaret Anna Ellis says it's time to stop, ta- stop trotting out tawdry traducements like transphobic Putin Nazi truckers and associated preposterous epithets that have grown threadbare from theatrical boy cries wolf repetition. And she gives you about three different videos, four different videos, showing where he is the one who's holding the, he's the fringe minority holding unacceptable views. Even his half-brother thinks so. And his former head of security, Corporal Daniel Bulford, thinks so. She says it's time to listen to the cacophonous will of the noble people you have been muffling throughout your solipsistic reign. 
It's time to recognize the Canadian truckers for the heroic freedom defenders they are. And it's time to understand that the Canadian people are on their side, not yours. It's time to admit that your COVID policies have failed. They failed to prevent transmission. They failed to prevent hospitalization. They have failed to decrease mortality rates. Here are the charts demonstrating what she's talking about. It's time to acknowledge you and your fellow tyrants have bungled Daddy Schwab's mission to demolish and rebuild the world in his image. And that's a good thing for humanity. It's time to join the growing number of enlightened countries that have dropped all COVID measures from masking to social distancing to vax ports to forced infections. If Boris can rescue his ridiculous image and garner cheers by dropping all COVID restrictions, surely you, with your fabulous hair, can too. She tells him it's time to retreat. It's time to accept defeat. It's time to uncoil from your fetal position and stop saying, oh well, people shouldn't worry, I'm fine. It's time to take off your costume. It's time to stop playing prime minister. It's time to file for divorce from Canada. Relationship guru John Gottman identifies the four horsemen of the apocalypse that signify a ruptured relationship. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. She says you are guilty of all four. Now, Gottman notes that the contempt, that contempt is the number one predictor of divorce. And she actually offers antidotes. There are ways that you can, can turn those things around. You can swap verbal attacks for expressions of a positive need. You can focus on the admirable qualities of Canadians and cultivate gratitude for all of them, vaxxed and unvaxxed alike. You can take responsibility for your harmful actions and offer a heartfelt apology. You can rip off your mask and dive into the freedom-loving mosh pit with your fellow Canadians. It's an essay that you need to see as much as you need to read just because the, the visuals and the backup material that she has are just marvelous. And I actually think she's speaking this with, with uh, some gentleness. This doesn't sound like a, hey, you know, you so-and-so and you're a piece of such and such. I think she's really trying to talk him off the ledge. And she says it's never too late to do the right thing. This is the time to redeem yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.